0: welcome to Food, Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tonya Barr. And I'm Lucy Allen. And this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people
1: who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward, whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen, or from the boardroom.
0: Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture, and we want you to know who they are, their views and their big ideas. Hi,
1: I'm Tanya. Lindy Milan is a self-made food and wine expert and media personality. Few in the industry have achieved the influence and profile that Lindy has. Lindy's success has been driven by one overarching mindset, and that's curiosity. We talk about how her career has unfolded and what puts fire in her belly today to do the work that she does. I really hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Lindy, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. It's nice to see you and it's really
2: special to have you on here. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And I've been enjoying listening to some of your podcasts.
1: Oh, good. Well, Lucy and I are enjoying doing them. You've been in the industry for over 30 years and have had an amazing career and paved the way for so many. Your energy and passion and all things food and wine is an inspiration, and it's been an inspiration for me since I moved to this country in 1995. And I know you've done lots of interviews, but for us on this podcast today, what I would love to know more about you and when you first went into the industry and how that
2: came to be. Well, it was a very circuitous route. And I do like to say I've just found a roundabout way of being a performer. But I started cooking when I was 16. My mother was not always well, so I started cooking then. And then also, it was pretty fun to have dinner parties. And I only had one other girlfriend who had dinner parties, but it was pretty interesting. The boys liked it. Anyway, so I was interested in food, therefore, from when I was 16. I grew up around the hospitality of the table. My parents lived and breathed it. There was always room for another one, two, three, four or five around our family table. And mum always did all the cooking from scratch. So there was that in my background. I then went to uni and I did a double major in fine arts and history. I wanted to go to NIDA or art school, but no, I needed to go to a proper university. And then I did a dip ed. So I became an art teacher for a year. By then I was married. I got married while I was at uni, silly girl. And of course, that's when I was really cooking and really entertaining and loved it. So th- we then went to Europe and took off in a combi van around Europe for three months. Well, I just loved it—the sights and the sounds and the smells of Europe and the different foods. I mean, it was just amazing. So, how old were you? Oh, I must have been—I must have been about twenty-two. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, it was probably twenty-two or twenty-three. Yeah. And that was just amazing. Anyway, then I ended up back in London. I worked for a creative consultancy. I was an itinerant Australian. I didn't want to teach there. And so I had taught myself to type before I left school. And so I'd done temporary secretarial work all through uni. So I got a job as what would now be called an EA to the chairman and managing director of a creative consultancy. And this was very new and very avant-garde instead of it being a full-service advertising agency. I worked for them and I used to get in Cordon Bleu Cooks to do our boardroom lunches and I used to think, oh, yeah, well, that's all right. I can do better than that. (laughs) Anyway, I I had split with my husband and then I met, this sounds good, doesn't it, I met my next husband (laughs) (laughs) and um, we both loved entertaining. So um, I said to them, you know, I'm staying but not as a jumped-up secretary. And they said, look, you're half running the place anyway, so if you can replace yourself, you can be general manager. Well, look, I did that, and it was quite interesting because Terence Conran was a director of the business. Mm -hmm. I had much to do with him, but we were just down the road from the Neal Street restaurant in Covent Garden. Funnily enough, the managing director went on to found the Chez Girard group, Lawrence Isaacson, and he went on to become a restaurateur, which is quite random and by chance. Then we. Decided to come to Australia. Nigel was English, came to Australia. I worked in advertising again as an advertising executive. And then I left when it seemed like I was 10 months pregnant with my first child and thought, well, I won't work again until my kids are at school. Now, he was a really good baby and I was bored. And much as we were entertaining a lot and we we're doing a lot of business entertaining. I pitched the advertising agency I used to work for to do their boardroom lunches. So I started doing their boardroom lunches. And then I was too busy, like everyone loved it. So I brought in a partner. We both just started off wanting to do lunches.
1: So did you set up a professional business? Or was it something that morphed from a side hustle kind of thing?
2: Oh, yeah, morphed from a side hustle. You're quite right. Well, she was a friend of my sister's who used to make cakes and sell them to cafes. And we didn't live far from each other. It was very sort of informal how we did it. So this is hilarious. So then we were doing that. And then Peter Howard, who some people will remember, he ended up, he was a TV and radio guy, but he was a teacher at TAFE, at North Ride TAFE, and he had a year's sabbatical in 1987 and there was a stock market crash. So our business was slow, so I decided to set up a cooking school at home. And Pete said, oh, I'll join you. So we had this hilarious cooking school, which was great. And then after that, he said, look, I never want to go back to teaching. Can I join your business? We brought him in and then he said, but look, we've got to get it. We've got to get a commercial kitchen because Gail and I lived really close to each other. Her kids used to run in between the two houses. You know, her kids were older than mine. Now, was this in Linfield? Yeah, in Linfield. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we both lived in Linfield. Yeah. Anyway, cut a long story short, rather than just getting a commercial kitchen, we bought a cafe in Northbridge Plaza and called it, so our company, now we were called Cuisine Affair. And by this stage, though, we'd started doing some much bigger events. And so we called it Cafe Cuisine Affair. And I remember this is where we got our first big job. So a friend of mine was on the Lady Marys' ball committee and she brought the event organiser into the cafe for dinner one Thursday night and asked us to pitch for the Lady Marys' ball. And this was fantastic. It was 750 people in the town hall and this was great. And I can tell you I was supervising that. We served the last person their main course, 20 minutes after the first one. And I think that's pretty good. <laughs> that's very impressive. So, you know, we're off and running, really. So, but honestly, having the cafe as well, oh, you know, because you're open from 8.30 in the morning till 5.30 at night. Thank heavens in those days we only had Thursday night. And Sundays we were closed. That was really good though, feet on the ground experience and knowing what it's like when your, when your espresso machine blows up or the dishwasher doesn't come in or whatever. And I think what's interesting is that any one of the three of us, we could work in the kitchen. We could work on the floor. Mm. Like we, we were versatile. So we weren't, we weren't at the mercy of having a chef. I mean, we did have a chef who worked with us, but we weren't at the mercy of the fact that. If we didn't have a chef, we couldn't run the business. Anyway, look, we ran it for 18 months, sold it a profit, and we're very pleased to get out, I can tell you. By then, I'd already started on radio. In fact, before the cafe, I'd started doing a food and wine segment on 2UE. I started off with Mark Day. So I'd already started doing that. And then when we after we sold the cafe, I was doing a lot of cake. Pete didn't want to pursue it anymore. Gail and I kept catering. And I was doing a lot of catering and a little bit of media. I'd started doing a little bit of television till 10 with Joni McGuinness, now Lady Joan Hardy, back in the very late 80s. I was doing the radio. I'd been writing for, doing reviews for the Sydney Morning Herald Good Food Guide. Started that in 1987 and I still do it to this day. The reason was I'd been invited to it and Leo was there and um. I gave him a free character analysis about a few of the reviews, and he said, oh, we'll have to get you on board. And he did, and it was just wonderful.
1: Did he ask you for that, or did you just volunteer it?
2: Oh, I may have just volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was great. And what was terrific, it was very consultative because we'd all – All the reviewers would be there, and we'd sit around a table before they were assigned, and so you could say, look, no, I'm friends with this person. Of course, it was a smaller market then. And then they'd say, oh, well, look, so-and-so's been overseas for two years. Let's send her up to Barara Waters. But then after we'd written our reviews and we came back, there was another collaborative meeting. So it was actually very well done. And the thing is that Leo knew that I could cook. So he knew that I would have and that I had a business and that I'd run a cafe. So, well, I actually wasn't even running the cafe then. So that was really the start of it. So once we were out of the cafe in 1990, I was doing a lot of catering, a little bit of media, and then with a hell of a lot of hard work, I was able to increase the media and decrease the catering and finally leave it all together.
1: Was there someone in the industry that you admired or that
2: mentored you through this? No, and it's something I want to say. I think mentoring's terribly important. I've got a female chef mentoring program, as you know, that we've been running for fifteen years through TAFE. No, I didn't. I'm a person who's I've never felt that I fitted the mold. I didn't quite fit the mold in my family, I didn't fit the mold at school, I didn't fit the mold at uni. I've just gone for it one hundred percent all of the time. And I wish I had had a mentor because I think that's so important. Mm.
1: So do you ever reflect back when when you referred to the combi van? And I can imagine you being free spirited, going through Europe and just, you know, not a care in the world and not knowing what the future holds. Do you ever think back at yourself, what was going through your head then?
2: That's a really good question. But no, I just remember absolutely loving it. It opened my eyes, but it was not only the food. So we'd eat out, but we had I had this stove. If you folded the front seat forward, there, there was this little two-burner stove. And I've got to tell you, with my TV shows, I've often just cooked on one of those little $15 gas burners from a camping <laughs> shop. And so I loved buying the ingredients and just cooking something with them. But it was also the camaraderie. And I, and to me, camaraderie is really important. Mm -hmm. So we'd go and park our combi, you know, in a camping area and, you know, you'd see some people and you'd, you know, talk to people, have a few drinks at night and whatever. And then, and then, you know, you'd be in another country a week later and the same people would rock up and we'd swap books. You'd finish writing a book, reading a book. And so you'd swap it with someone and sometimes you'd feed each other or you'd say, Oh, look, I found this fabulous little restaurant. I just think it was the fun of it all. And I mean, I just and to this day, I just love traveling and exploring. I love finding new things.
1: You spend a lot of time traveling, don't you?
2: Yeah, I do. I'm lucky, really. I'm I'm lucky in that. So I lived in London for three years, but then back in Australia. But, um, you know, as I got into the media, I was very much in the food media. And then I really got into the wine media. And that that really started because if I was doing a big function for, you know, 750 people at the town hall, you'd have to get the wine in. So I would work, obviously, with someone who had a license. And so I started learning about wine and then I started teaching food and wine matching. And it's interesting because I think food and wine... It's like a good relationship. You know, you want to help each other be the best version of yourself. And I think you can have lovely food and lovely wine. And if they don't go together, it cannot be very exciting. But if they can uplift each other, that's wonderful. And then I got into travel. So much as I've been on familiarizations, food trips, and I'm incredibly lucky because I've been to South Africa, Morocco, Portugal, Spain, Greece. That's been a fantastic foundation. And now I do host tours myself.
1: When you talk about food and wine matching, sometimes they're an afterthought. Sometimes you've put so much effort into the food and you go, oh, well, we'll just have that red. We'll just have that white and we'll be right. Or vice versa. You're doing a wine tasting and you're not necessarily thinking about the food. So. That's something that you really have educated for many years and you're doing that today
2: online, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I'm doing, yeah, fun with wine. I thought I'd do that. But, look, it's not a bad thing to start either from the food or from the wine Mm. because it depends on, like, if you're having people over for dinner, that's a holistic thing, that's one thing. But if you're launching a wine, then any any food should support that wine. But if it's about the food, then you want the wine to support the food. It's in the same way you might put people together around a table. You want people who are going to go to get on, but you also want to ca- have some energy. But yes, I've started doing that fun with wine because I'm not a serious wine writer in the sense of being very learned and worthy. I want people to have fun with it. My whole thing is trying to demystify mm. anything that goes on at the table. Demystify the food, or the the Wine. You know, it's something you're going to eat and something you're going to drink. So I think we can get too caught up in it. I don't want people intimidated. My concern with some of the so-called reality shows is that people think these are ordinary home cooks making these incredible meals. And there's actually research out to show that they're feeling disempowered, I want to empower people and the reason is we've got extraordinary produce and in Australia it's accessible. Historically it's been affordable. Sadly, prices are going up, but so are prices of prepared food. But we worry about our children being literate and numerate. But if they can't look after themselves, they give up all of their rights to packaged goods manufacturers anyway. Sure, have takeaway because you choose to on that occasion, but not because you're obliged to, because you have no other way of feeding yourself. Mm. So I don't want to make it seem hard. I want to make it seem really easy. And it is easy. So that's what I'm trying to do with wine as well, because wine is a fantastic agricultural product and it is our duty (laughs) to drink (laughs) it it and support the industry.
1: Well, Are you also looking at seltzers and non-alcoholic drinks? Are you going across beverages as a whole or are you focusing primarily on wine?
2: I'm focusing primarily on wine. It's where my heart is. Mm. I'm a girl who drinks water or wine or coffee. And I just think there's so much to know. And it's not that I haven't, you know, written on beer and food matching, but I just think, look, eat you know, to try to be a generalist, I'll just I'll just go with what I know and with what floats my boat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, I can only imagine how many dinner parties you've been to, and I've been lucky enough to be at a few. But is there one in particular that really just stands out to you?
2: In terms of a dinner party?
1: Yeah, in terms of a dinner party, whether it's the food or the wine or the company.
2: Well, I've got to say, John and I used to love having dinner parties. I have this little trick Where just before entree, I say, okay, after entree, you're going to introduce the person on your left or your right. And it gets them talking. And also then they don't just talk about themselves when we go around the table. That's a bit of fun. I've had, I'm a very lucky girl. I had John Cleese for dinner twice. Now that was pretty interesting. I can't, I cannot remember what I cooked, but it was pretty, yeah, that was pretty interesting. So how did that come about? Oh, okay. Because we had a TV business and a TV distribution business and we had a mutual friend. So she brought him for dinner and it was just the four of us. And then the next time he was back in Australia, we had a whole lot of executives from SBS mm-hmm. and we had all of them and we had him. So like, it's pretty amazing to think I had John Cleese in my house. Absolutely. It's been fun. I'll tell you what, we had some Chinese TV executives too. Oh, my God, that was amazing. I remember I offered two choices per course, except we had our staff there as well, except I would told them they had to pre-order so I knew in advance. Mm-hmm. But so that I had, you know, I had kangaroo on the menu, but I had seafood, but I had safe choices as well. They were terrific. They were very keen to try the kangaroo. It was really great. I mean, I think that's fun. And another time, it was when, because I was on the Tourism Australia Food and Wine Advisory Panel, and we had that uh, invite the world to dinner in Tasmania, but there was a whole prelude thing. And so then Wine Australia actually had invited a whole lot of sommeliers. So I did a lunch for sommeliers, and that was brilliant. I had a an oyster grower shucking oysters on the balcony So I used all Sydney Royal award-winning produce. I did a barramundi ceviche. I remember I had Millie Hill lamb. I had cheeses. I had everything. And then the wines, because there were a couple of female winemakers there as well. That was a really special thing to be able to do.
1: When you have moments like that and you walk away, do you pinch yourself? Do you go, this is incredible. This is an incredible experience in my life.
2: Yes. It was such an honor to do it. Like I am such a proud Australian. I'm sixth generation Australian. And for me, I've got goosebumps now, to be able to showcase the quality produce we have here, especially all this it was all, you know, Sydney Royal medal winning winning produce, which which you as a judge know it's this it's squeaky clean. It's the it's the I would say it's the best judging in Australia because it's impartial and independent and done blind. But to be able to showcase that, because that's the other thing, to give back to those producers. You know, I've always been, I don't know where, people say to me, are you from the country? And I'm not, but nowhere do I feel as connected with our land as I do when I'm in the country. And I think it was because I was brought up by my parents to be respectful. But also, if we don't have farmers and producers, I don't have a job. You know, and it's also the honesty of people there, but but to actually grow a thing and care about it and curate it and send it to market, like, that's amazing. And, you know, that's what's been so fantastic in some of my TV shows, to be able to go and see the farmer's you know, where they live.
1: From a respect point of view and also understanding the value proposition, understanding what goes into it and why costs are what they are and the logistics and everything else. It's not just a matter of growing that ingredient. It's about getting it to the back door of your restaurant or your home.
2: I think you've just made a really, really good point, And that is about the costs to the farmer. I have never met a farmer who did not want to leave their land in better condition than they found it they regard themselves as custodians and caretakers of that land. And I think one of the roles of the food media is for me to explain to my audiences why something is of value, Mm -hmm. why you can taste for yourself but why it is worth paying whatever this if that's what you have to pay, but just telling the story behind the product and then let people make up their own minds.
1: And that's lessening the
2: disconnection. Absolutely. So
1: when you think back when you were cooking in Linfield in your home and your children were running around and you prepared a meal and you sold it or you catered an event and you wowed um, your customer and they said, can we have some more? And then you built your business and then the cafe. When you're cooking today at events or festivals or on TV, do you still get that same sort of joy
2: I do, actually. I have to say because of my personal circumstances at the moment, I don't get a huge amount of joy cooking for myself at home, but I still do because I just don't eat pre-prepared food or takeaway. But I do, and, you know, I used to love it when I'd do a class. I up. I, I taught at the Sydney Seafood School for about 20 years and i just love it when I got in front of that audience. See, I do love live. I got in front of that audience, and it's really funny because that's how I met my partner. He was dragged kicking and screaming to a cooking class as a birthday present. And what he said to me afterwards was, because, you know, I talked to him after, well, he talked to me afterwards. He said, I just loved your sales technique. But it wasn't a sales technique. I was just so excited about the produce I was using and what I was cooking and how it tasted.
1: And what were you cooking? Do you remember?
2: Oh, I did Spanish. It was Spanish Seafood and Wine. Mm -hmm. And because I did 17 of those classes and they're all different, I can't remember which one it was, but I did four dishes and then they go through to, I spend an hour doing that. Then they go through to the practical kitchen for an hour and a half, five to a bench, and they recreate those dishes. And then they go through to the dining room and I would put up four different wines to go with them. I've just Put myself out of my comfort zone because I'm going to be the guest chef at a Taste of Streaky Bay for Tasting Australia. And I haven't cooked for a hundred people in a long time, but there are, you know, there are local chefs down there who will Support me. Yeah, I think it's good to put ourselves out of our comfort zone every now and then.
1: Absolutely. And for listeners that might not know where Streaky Bay is, Streaky Bay is in the Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. And the seafood that comes out of the water, they've
2: got oysters, they've got prawns, but actually down there, they've also got beef, lamb, and pork, and honey and grain. Mm.
1: Yeah. And capers. Did you know they grow capers there?
2: No, I didn't know they grew capers there. I Mm. filmed with someone in the Riverina who did capers. Fresh capers are extraordinary. I'll have to get you to tell me all of that later.
1: I sure will. We've taken quite a few chef groups down there and it's an extraordinary place. And you're right. They did market themselves as the seafood frontier, but they have much more than that. Wonderful lamb and pork, like you just said. When is this event happening? Maybe I should book a ticket. It's the 7th of May. So it's
2: during Tasting Australia. And I'm doing a tea and tannin masterclass the week before. Which is comparing wine and Chinese teas. What we'll do in
1: the show notes is we'll put links to all these events that you're doing.
2: Okay.
1: And also links to your website. And I know you have a really good newsletter that you send
2: out. It's weekly, isn't it? I mostly send it out weekly, yeah. Can you believe it? It's a huge amount of work. But I do, and there's not and I'm not one of these people who says, you know, sign up, it's free and then put up a paywall. It's free every week. <laughs> well,
1: every week it lands in my inbox and there's always a wonderful takeaway, whether it's um, seasonal inspiration or a recipe or what's happening or, you know, you've, you really do have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in food and wine.
2: Yeah, well, I think we've got to stay abreast of things because things change. They change so quickly. It's actually pretty hard to keep up, really. Mm.
1: If you had some advice for someone going into the food industry today, what advice would you give this person?
2: For someone going into the industry, I think it's a matter of knowing that you have to work hard. It's not for the faint-hearted. It is hard work, but if it's what you truly want to do, do it. But also keep educating yourself. I think that's really, really important. You know, I started off as an enthusiastic amateur, but I used to go to classes at accoutrement. I mean, Stephanie Alexander's now a good friend of mine. We had dinner in Melbourne on Sunday night, but I can clearly remember going to one of her classes at accoutrement where she did duck. She she stuffed the neck of the, you know, she, she confied the leg and she did the breast and, you know, I just think you can always learn. I think keep your eyes and ears open. And I'm someone who, you know, I'm like trying to learn how to say no, but I would say to someone young, say yes. Get as much experience as you can, but do not put up with bad behaviour. Have your boundaries. And if you can get a mentor, then that is just so valuable. When I look at the girls and the women who have been through Tasting Success, they all say, it's changed my life. So I think if you can get yourself a good mentor, that's fantastic. But otherwise, you've got to work at it. Mm. It's not going to come to you. You've got to go after it and work hard. And, you know, the other thing is always err on the side of being early, pleasant and well-dressed. You won't get disappointed. You may indeed end up somewhere you didn't expect.
1: Mm. That's very good advice, and you can't fast track it. Do you find that, you know?
2: <laughs> I love that, Tonia. It's like no, you can't fast track it.
1: <laughs> experience is experience. There's no way of, um, yeah, getting it without doing it. You know.
2: That's right, and you know, you know, so many other cultures revere age and wisdom, mm. and I'm not sure that our does. But you're quite right. You've just got to. You've just, there's no, there's no shortcuts. You can become more efficient by getting some training. Mm. Nothing wrong with that at mm. all. And I remember, you know, people said to me, you know, some years you know, after my husband and I had separated, they said to me, oh, you've done really well. And I said, I've worked really hard. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's what it is. But if it's what you love. I remember when I started doing this as a career, really, with the catering, a friend that I'd worked with in advertising, he said to me, you're making a big mistake. You're making your hobby your profession. And I said, what's wrong with that? Isn't that genius? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) In terms of barriers that you've had, is there certain obstacles that have been thrown your way that you could at least give some advice on that, you would like others to avoid?
2: You know that's a really interesting question. I'm not one of these people who had a game plan. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of these people who had aims and objectives and a piece of paper and and wrote down my vision. I've just always, I've sometimes created opportunities. I haven't only followed opportunities, but when I think about it, you know it's my getting into food was a roundabout way. I mean, Food's my third career, art teacher, advertising executive, and then food, and, of course, then into the media. Um, it's just that I have I see opportunities. I think one of my things is that I can connect people as well. Look, there are barriers, you know, especially with television because, you know, we're all supposed to look a certain way. Oh, it's a really, really tough question. Well, I think what's hard for young people is they can't get experience. They can't get a job because they haven't got experience and they can't get experience because they can't get a job. I think that's really, I think that can be a real challenge for young people. There's nothing wrong with going and volunteering and getting a bit of work experience either, not, not that you want to get taken advantage of. But going, at, there's nothing wrong with going and offering to do something for nothing in terms of work experience. You do
1: volunteer a lot and you do a lot of great work for charities and organizations. And you mentioned earlier about the Sydney Royal Fine Food with the Royal Agricultural Society. Maybe we could touch on that because that's an incredible organization doing amazing things for ag and businesses. How did you get involved with the Royal Agricultural Society?
2: Oh, look, that's a great question, Tonya. Love your questions. So I was a celebrity cheese judge because I was already in the media. They used to have this celebrity cheese board. So they got people who are in the media to go and judge. And it was absolutely appalling the way the cheese was displayed and everything like that. So I wrote to the chair of the Dairy Produce Committee and pointed out how this could be improved. You know, he took it on the chin and he wrote back to me and he invited me in for lunch one day when they were having council meetings. And I went in. First of all, he did a double take because I was wearing a pantsuit. Because back in the day at the Easter show, but this wasn't Easter show, to go into the council stand, ladies had to wear a dress.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Hilarious. Can you believe this? So this was probably in about 1994 and 1995. Anyway, he took it on the chin and so we went through everything and I gave him a whole lot of ideas and, you know, more more contemporary ideas and, you know, professionalising things. He said, we're looking for more members of council. Now, it was a period of affirmative action. I know that. And so in the end, I got nominated to council. Now, back in those days, it had to be unanimous. So you were... I mean, you know, you had to fill in all the forms and do everything else, and then you were nominated to council. So I couldn't believe it. I I still can't. So in 1996, I became the third ever female councillor of the Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales. Wow. And I was brought on to to take over the Dairy Produce Committee a year or two later when this gentleman would need to retire. But once I got there, and like I loved it, my parents quartered at the Easter show. It's not just the Easter show obviously that's just the most obvious thing we do we do we do good work in agriculture 365 days of the year. I just couldn't help myself. I looked at all these other competitions and I said to them and this was just when they were having to move from the old showground out to Sydney Olympic Park. And I remember getting up and I saying saying to them, you know, the old ways of agriculture are increasingly challenged and we eat differently. So we've got to start a new committee and we've got to start judging different Australian product. So I was already on the wine committee and I was chair of the dairy committee, so we started the fine foods committee. And I just did that by sheer force of personality and determination and some great people at the RAS. Dairy already already existed. Those were the first food shows in Australia. And if you think now all the royals around Australia do it, I mean, Delicious has been doing it for a while, but we started our first competition was in 1998, and I'm really proud of that. And you should be. It's important to say when you see a Sydney Royal medal Mm. on a product, so there's gold, silver, bronze, it's not a pass, first past the post. Everything, that standards stay the same year in, year out. So if it's a bad year for agriculture, we've had trouble with aquaculture, because of weather, you know, you might see less entries and you might see not such a high standard, or you might. So if you see a gold, silver or bronze, you just know. And as you know, you're as a judge, you know, everything's judged blind. Um, You're not allowed to collude with each other. We judge on tablets. There's a panel of three. It's pretty amazing how that's come on. And that's, of course, giving back to the producers, because if they can show a Sydney Royal Medal, that does Mm. give them a marketing advantage. But also, hopefully, the feedback helps them improve their product as well.
1: Absolutely. As somebody who has been judging for quite a few years and the debates that happen, you know, and the banter doesn't happen lightly. To get any medal, any of the silver, bronze or gold, like you just said, is quite difficult. There's a lot of debating that goes along and there's a lot of prestige that goes along with having those medals.
2: Yeah, there is. There is. So I'm really proud of that. And the great thing is that, you know, it's got a life of its own now. You know, in those first few years, it very much depended on me driving it. But once we got it up and running, because, you know, the RAS has got such a wonderful history of exhibition education and entertainment, it's just magnificent to see how that goes. And I know that if I go under a bus tomorrow, that's all, that's for that's not going to be affected in the slightest. And the staff we have out there are truly extraordinary. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't chaired the committee for a long time. It's just great to know that I've made a difference and that will continue on. And it's like Tasting Success, the female chef mentoring program, you know, that's making a difference. It's making people's lives better. And, you know, I think I've been very fortunate in my career I mean, it's, it's all because of hard work, my hard work, but I have been fortunate. So I think it's great to be able to actually give back and hopefully let some other people have an easier path.
1: What you have done and what you continue to do at every stage and age is wonderful. Does it still put fire in your belly today?
2: It absolutely does put fire in my belly today. And the thing is, you know, we touched on, experience and wisdom before, you know, I've still got a lot to offer. You know, I really have. I'm certainly not ready to sit back and play bridge. It's not who I am. I can see opportunities. I can see things that that I can do. And I, you know, I don't want to be, you know, restricted. Because of my apparent age. Thank heavens Margaret Fulton kept going for such a long time. Mm. And the two most popular TV personalities in the UK are David Attenborough and Mary Berry. Yep. So maybe there is some hope. Yeah, but but I still want to contribute. You know, mm. I it's part of who I am. I'm not someone who can just sit back. It's just not in me. Mm. And I don't think I don't think I ever will be.
1: We don't want you to 100% because um, you do give a lot to the all different ages and stages. And I mean, as a business owner myself, and as a woman in food, it's comforting to know that as we all get older, that the opportunity for us to keep enjoying what we are doing is there.
2: Well, I think what we need to do as well, though, is to constantly reinvent ourselves. I I don't think we can just lie back on our laurels either Mm. and so in about 2015 I decided that I should use you know my knowledge and my and my talents and whatever to become a tour host and you see I love that I love taking people and showing them other foods other cultures other countries COVID of course put a big stop to it for a bit but I'm really pleased that I got back to that uh, last year with tours to Puglia and um, Morocco. But that's something, you know, I'm a people person. I love talking to people, connecting with them, you know, just to, just to sort of be able to manage them, make sure they have a fabulous time and still be able to show them because I think the food of a culture is such an insight into what that culture is really, really, really about. What tours do you have coming up? Well, because of COVID, I just wanted to have those two last year that that had been postponed three times each. Oh, yeah. So I don't have any this year because you need a good year to sell them. But I will be doing Puglia in May 2024, and I'll probably do Morocco pretty close to it as well so that I've got, because that's the other thing, you know, airfares have become ridiculous. Um, so that I'm over sort of located, located there and do it. So just finalising the details for Puglia, but it will be May. It will be May 24.
1: Well, I tell you, tasting Australia and heading down to the Stricky Bay, Air Peninsula sounds pretty good.
2: Yes, it does. And look, I'm, you know, I'm travelling again this year.
1: In my office, I've got a bumper sticker that says, where the hell is Streeky Bay? <laughs>
2: <And> <laughs>
1: so when you're there and you go in the gift shop, pick one up.
2: <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, I will... And when I was food director of the Women's Weekly, I had a bookmark and I had it taped to my my computer and it said, I don't do ordinary. That makes sense to me. I think that we never stop learning. I think curiosity is a really important um, thing to have, to be curious. Curious, you know, I'll see something, think, oh, where's that from? Or how was that prepared? Or, or how was that cooked? And I think curiosity is really good. And in 2019, I did a postgraduate academic course in taste in France. And like I hadn't been, you know, back somewhere like that since I was at uni. We had a week with uh, Le Cordon Bleu in Paris and then a week at Orange University um, in the Champagne area. And there was an exam, a written exam afterwards. But you know what was amazing? There were 25 of us from 15 different nationalities. And they were all really bright and it was so, it was so fascinating. And, but then we had to write a thesis. So that's when I wrote my thesis, which was a really good idea in 2019 when I started it, but not such a good idea in 2021 when I finished it. (laughs) What was your thesis on? Well, I looked at the eight great cuisines of China because Chinese food is not just one homogenous whole, Mm. eight different cuisines of China. I analysed them and analysed their flavours, and then I looked at the teas of China. I did some training with a Chinese tea master, a couple of them actually, and then I looked at and the teas are not jasmine, but, you know, white, yellow, green, oolong, pu'er, dark, black. And then I postulated that you could use them, if you like, as a metaphor for, for Australian wine. So I went, and this was just in between the two COVID lockdowns, I managed to get South Australia to the university, um, to the sensory lab, and I did some taste tests with trained tasters over two days of six wines and six different teas. And the science absolutely backed up my proposition, which is that you can correlate, you know, you can correlate a tea with a wine style. So I thought this would be fabulous and that I could write a fabulous book on it. But, of course, we're not really selling selling much Australian wine into China. It was really good to go back and do something academic and, you know, make sure that the brain was still working. And that's what I'm going to do a masterclass on for Tasting Australia as well.
1: So do you have a favourite variety of tea?
2: No, because I'm actually not a tea drinker. This is what is oh, bizarre. Is I've bizarre. never, like I especially can't stand, you know, <laughs> English tea with milk but i sort of quite got into i th- i think poors are pretty interesting tea it's so different when you drink them and when you when you have them in a fine dining setting it's really interesting and it's like you know there are a lot of similarities with wine i mean but no one else has ever done this i mean Jancis Robinson's got one paragraph on her website and i had the academics searching you know searching academia to see if there'd been ever been any papers on it and they haven't so you know that's pretty exciting, and it's just it. It would be such a massive undertaking to now turn it into a book or a, a proper scientific paper, which the professor wants me to do. But I'm not a scientist, you know. I'm I go with my gut feeling. I was I did it. Yes, sure, I did it from from the brain, but actually, I did it from the gut and tasting. It's like food and wine matching. Does it make you smile or does it make you shudder? If it makes you smile, it's great, you know.
1: <laughs> and and it stemmed from that key word you said earlier, curiosity.
2: Yeah, curiosity I think is, and that's. I think that's, that's mm. a really important quality to have or, you know, to have that curious mind, yeah.
1: Well, do you have a favourite meal that you like
2: to cook? That's a really good question because it depends how I feel, what day of the week it is. Um, I do really enjoy cooking a paella for people because it is so fabulous when you bring it to the table because it just looks great and you don't have to worry about presentation because it just looks great all by itself and everyone can serve themselves. Whereas if you're plating up a single meal, it's like, oh, mm. you know, I'm not a food stylist, you know. I mean I've done it but it doesn't mean it's not my thing. Mm-hmm. But I do love and I think, I think I like a paella because when you have shared food, it brings people together even more. You know, my my whole thing is about connecting at the table. Mm-hmm. And I think when there is shared food like that, and the other thing too is that you might serve the person next to you. I want to inspire people and I want to nourish them and I want to connect them as well. And I just think that's a great way of doing it with a lovely big shared dish. I mean, you can do the same thing with a a lovely slow rest roasted, you know or bandit's lamb because of course you know i did a tv series in greece and that's a traditional greek dish so i like i just love that feeling of sharing i mean the time i used to do six course dinner parties and handwrite menus and paint quail bones gold <laughs> and tie them on the edge with
1: hang on hang on gold paint, wait 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 stop
2: paint back in the 80s paint the quail bones gold yeah, so I'd quail wishbones. Yeah. So I would collect them. I would paint them gold. I would hand write a menu and I would tie the wishbone on with gold thread for the dinner party. That was in the 80s when I was a corporate wife. Right. Those were the days. I, <laughs> oh, didn't save the marriage. <laughs> but, yeah, oh, look, I just couldn't be bothered doing that now. Yeah. I mean, it's hilarious, really. Oh
1: God. Okay, yeah. I haven't seen I haven't seen anything quite like that. So the attention no. to detail. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Neither have I. No one had then either. It is a long time ago.
1: Is there anything else to, you would like to say before we wrap it up?
2: My other thing too is that I believe in reconciliation through food. So not a, and I've been actively eating indigenous native food since nineteen eighty one when Edna's Table restaurant opened. But not not only in terms of within Australia, but other cultures, welcoming migrants from overseas or going to their country. If you eat the food of a country, it is your beginning of understanding it and your tolerance and your acceptance. So I think a bit of sitting down and eating around the table can solve a lot of problems.
1: Here, here. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lindy, very much for spending your morning with me and for coming in and, and being on our podcast.
2: Well, thank you so much and I love the work you do and it's been an absolute honour to be on with you. Just remember everybody, keep cooking and you'll keep smiling.
0: (laughs) That's it. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes. We have some more extraordinary guests lined up and we would love you to join us again. So please make sure you're following us on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd also love to hear any of your feedback, good or bad, or perhaps you've got a guest you'd love to hear from. You can let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of the Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.